Hey, let's take our Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to Revelation chapter 16. And this evening we are in part number three of the message I began a couple of weeks ago, Vials of Wrath, taken from this 16th chapter. And as I look over what we have to talk about in this 16th chapter, I feel like I have a monumental task with these last verses trying to explain to you all the implications of the final two plagues that are going to bring about the end of the tribulation and then uh, the establishment of the millennial kingdom. In the two previous messages, we've looked at the first five plagues, and each of these plagues are judgments that come upon the kingdom of the Antichrist, and what they do is they keep pushing the final history of the world to that culminating event that breaks Satan's centuries-old stranglehold upon this world. This is God purging the world of the curse of sin, and it takes place all throughout this seven-year period of tribulation. But the end of the seven years is drawing near in chapter 16, and it's revealed that God has reserved his last judgments or his worst judgments, I should say, for last. And so there are a succession of seven terrible plagues that come upon the earth like a steamroller. I mean, one just comes right after the other until the power of Satan is broken. And the end result of that will be Christ's millennial kingdom that comes on earth, and the wicked men of this world are actually shackled and ruled with a rod of iron. Now, thus far, we've discussed five of these plagues, and we're coming to the final two. This evening, we'll discuss plague number six, and then number seven will be in the next message. So, we'll look at the text here for this sixth plague, and and then we'll have a short review, and then we'll go on uh, with the explanation of that one. So, if you look in Revelation 16, verse number 12, well, let's stand up. I'll give you one more chance to stand before this two-hour sermon, and... uh, no, it's not going to. I thought you guys would be a little bit spoiled this morning because I think I looked at the time on Brother uh, Morris's sermon. It was 29 minutes. Well, those days are over. That's not going to happen. So, uh, Verse number 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together unto a place in the Hebrew tongue called Armageddon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have to be here tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the services we've had today, for Brother Morris that was with us. And, Lord, we just uh, thank you for the encouragement that he's given us concerning reaching people with the gospel and then the commitment that we should have um, in our own lives to serve you. And this is what we've been saved for. This is why we're here, and that's to serve you and glorify your name. Bless the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In last week's message, I took a little bit of time to sort of catch us up to let you uh, see once again how we actually got to this place in the book of Revelation. I really don't have time to go back into that tonight. I don't have time for that kind of review. And so if you're 
here this evening and, and you haven't heard the other messages, I have to apologize for dropping you into the middle of something that you might not uh, quite understand. And as I said, I think uh, in last week's lesson that one of the things we really have to do here is you have to balance out the whole ministry. Because if you just look at what we're talking about now, uh, these are frightening things, they're frightening images. And we don't spend all of our time here in church talking doom and gloom. It just happens that we're in the book of Revelation and we have to take the scriptures as they come. We teach them just like the Bible gives them. And as we're going through other books uh, on on other services, then we don't uh, see this same picture that we have here. But it's very important for us to understand who God is and, and what God is doing. And lots of people want to believe in the God of love, they, they, and God is a God of love, and he cares for us. He sent Christ in the world to die for our sins. But we ought not ever to mistake that God also is a God of justice and a God of judgment, and he will judge this world one of these days. And it's very, very important to us that we do under, understand this, and we have our faith in Christ that we, so that we escape the wrath of God. So we don't really have time to catch everybody up on where we are. So we're going to go uh, rather quickly here through these first plagues that we've already talked about. And the first plagues are described in verses 1 through 11. They aren't the only judgments that are found in Revelation, but they are the worst. All of them are bad. Everything that we've read in the tribulation period is bad. But now we're really looking at the worst of it. This is the last few days, or at most the last few weeks of the tribulation period. And this is when the Antichrist really has solidified his power over the entire world. And so you could say up to this point... The Antichrist stock has been rising. People have their confidence in him. But beginning with chapter 16, his kingdom is rapidly coming to a close. And God is breaking it down to where he finally just pulverizes it until there's not one piece of his kingdom left. So God does this by bringing this succession of plagues upon the earth. And we'll run, as I said, we'll run through these first five very quickly. We've already discussed these in the previous messages. But the first plague, vial number one, is boils because of the beast. And this is when an angel comes out and he targets the Antichrist kingdom and his followers for destruction. And the first plague that's poured out upon them is a blain of boils. And these are excruciating open wounds that can't be healed. The pain of them can't be deadened with any kind of medicines. And so those who have taken the mark of the beast and did that uh, willingly, uh, they, they were, were gladly following him. Now they're targeted and they enter into this personal suffering for taking part of his corruption. Then the second plague is poured out and vial number two is on the souls of the sea. This means that there's an angel that brings a plague that affects all the sea life. Uh, all the seas of the world are turned into a thick coagulating blood. And some have interpreted this to mean that Life in the sea is going to writhe and die like a a man dying in his own pool of blood. And the stench of the water is going to be so great and the destruction of animal life so great, all choked out, that it's really going to be unimaginable what, what that is going to be like. Then the third angel comes immediately after the second and his... A plague is to pour out on all the fresh water supplies and destroy them and turn them into blood. So vial number three is all water is waste water. And of course we know that when scientists are looking for life on other planets, and I'm not going to get into that tonight about whether we think that there are aliens out there somewhere. If you've been, how many of you watch V on TV or whatever? The, oh, okay, some of you will admit to that. 
<laughs> uh, I, I, we won't talk about aliens tonight, but scientists, when they're looking for life on other planets, the, one of the first things that they do is they look for water. Is there evidence of water? And if there's evidence of water, then they know, they, they think that there could be life there. So I think that the Lord may affect the freshwater supplies and all the water of the earth. Just let us know that he's in control here and he's in control of sustaining life and he could quickly banish life in an instance if he, instant if he wanted to. And so he turns not only seawater into blood, but also the freshwater streams and rivers and lakes are all turned into blood. And we've seen throughout this tribulation period how the Antichrist has really thrived on the blood of martyrs. He mercilessly killed, killed so many of God's people. And so what God does, he just returns the blood to him. And he just uh, gives him all the blood that he can handle. Now a fourth angel comes out and this angel uh, is, uh, has a plague that affects the sun. And so we've called this the scorching sun. And here we have no doubt at all, if, if anyone did have a doubt, that God controls the universe. Well, here we see that God takes visible control of the sun. Now, we, we may think about this, and scientists look at this, and they've kind of got things figured out, how things chemically and physically work, and they have a length of time that they think that the sun is going to last. And so we sort of get the idea that, well, the sun's running on autopilot. I mean, the, the chemical reactions, the physics, physics are all there, and it just happens that way. But God's in control of all of that. And at any time, God can change any of those processes if he wants. And here we see in in this plague that God chooses to make a change. Now, previously, in one of the other uh, judgments that he brought upon the earth, he had blocked out the sun. And now he reverses that process and causes the sun to shine even hotter. So he turns up the heat, and there's this scorching heat that blisters the flesh of men. One of the things that we've noticed about this as we've gone through it, that there is no repentance. Even though people know that this is coming from God, they don't turn to him. They don't, they don't change their ways. And the reason that they don't is because as much as God is in control of the universe, he's in control of men. He's in control of all the acts of men. And he won't let men repent. Because at this time, the day of his grace is over. Now we have vial number five. This is darkness and despair. In this judgment, darkness comes upon the kingdom of the Antichrist directly. I mean, this, this one's pointed directly at him. And so the Antichrist may try to hide himself away. He may be in his palaces and hoarding food and having his luxuries while all the rest of the world suffers. But eventually, this is coming to his house. And he's going to fail like all of the rest. So now then we want to move on to the sixth plague. And the sixth one is described in the verses that we just read, verses 12 through 16. So let's look at that once again. Uh, Revelation 16, verse 12. And we're calling this vial the march to Megiddo. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Now let's break this down verse by verse. I'm going to give you four subheadings to describe this. The first one is the path to slaughter. 
Now these, again, are not pleasant things to talk about, but the path to slaughter. The sixth angel pours out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. Now, we may, we may not be used to thinking of the Euphrates as being one of the major rivers of the world, but it certainly has played a prominent part in world history. Civilization began in the Middle East, and the Euphrates has always been a very important boundary line in that part of the world. The Euphrates is actually mentioned as far back going to the Garden of Eden as one of the four great rivers that had its headwaters in the Garden of Eden. And as I said, it's, it's a, a prominent river in Bible history. It's um, a, a river in Western Asia that stretches over 1,800 miles. It was the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire and also the eastern boundary of the land that God gave to Abraham. And in the ancient world, rivers were always a problem for armies. They were difficult to diverse and of course, an army had to have a way to cross those, and that's one of the, this Euphrates River is one of the reasons why invading Israel was a, a difficult thing for nations that were to the east of them. And today, of course, there are many bridges that have been built across the Euphrates River, but looking in the tribulation time, I could imagine that with all the judgments that God has passed upon the world and all the earthquakes that have come, it's very likely that the infrastructure has been greatly broken down, and travel is not easy. And when the seventh plague comes, which we're going to talk about next week, there's going to be such a devastating earthquake that the whole topography of the world will be changed. And so we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the drying up this ri- of this river is very significant because it facilitates the movement of troops across this dry riverbed into the place where God is going to deliver the final crushing blow to the armies of the Antichrist. So verse number 12 says that the river is dried up and the way has been prepared for the kings of the east. And that's reference to countries like India and China and North and South Korea, those of Southeast Asia and Russia. All of them will be able to make their way across the river to the prepared place that God uh, has uh, which we'll get in just a moment, Armageddon. Now, we might wonder, uh, why all these vast troop movements? I mean, if you look at this today, there are lots of people that say that future wars are not going to be necessarily fought with so many troops on the ground, but rather they'll be fought in buildings somewhere, Washington or somewhere, where they just push a button and bombs go everywhere and and destroy people in that way. But I found a very interesting uh, comment about this from W.A. Criswell, He tells the story about a conversation that he had with the army, or rather with the chief of staff at the Pentagon, or chief of staff of the Pentagon. Uh, Criswell didn't know it at the time, but when he got onto a plane that was leaving Detroit, uh, on this same plane they were transporting several top Pentagon officials. And just by chance, or by providence, as Criswell would say, he was seated right next to a five-star general who happened to be the chief of staff. And so they carried on a conversation on this flight, and Criswell says that they fought the entire Korean War all over again uh, during the flight, and of course this was several years ago, until uh, the conversation started to take a turn, and they were speaking about some more personal things. But Criswell had something on his mind that he wanted to ask this general, and I want to relate it to you in Criswell's own words. He says, this is what I wanted to know. We live in a day of jet planes, atomic fission, thermonuclear warfare, and hydrogen bombs that can blot out the earth. Yet the Bible speaks about armies, armies. So I asked the general, do you think that the foot soldier, the infantry, the army is archaic, 
antiquated, will never be used again. He replied, no, indeed, listen, however we may develop instruments of destruction and however we may progress in the art of atomic warfare, there will never come a time ever in any development foreseeable when we do not have to, ha- do not have, to have the foot soldier, the infantryman. He added, I'll give you two reasons for it. Whenever we conquer a country, someone has to be there to possess it, to control it, to guide it. That means you must have soldiers. If we, are to ever, uh, if we are ever victorious, we must have someone occupy the land. Second, he said, and the biggest reason we shall always have an army is this. He then took out a piece of paper and emphasizing his words with diagrams, he said, we have to have an army to push our enemies together. For he said, atomic weapons and hydrogen bombs are of no use whatsoever if the enemy is deployed over the face of a continent. For if we exploded here pointing to a spot, we might kill 10 soldiers. If we explode it there, pointing to another spot, we might kill 50. The only way that an atomic bomb is ever useful and profitable is when we have a concentration of the enemy so you can drop it on them. But in order to push those enemies together, we must have an army to compress them so you can drop your bomb effectively. Now, you couldn't explain Armageddon any better than that. How do you get all of these armies gathered into one spot? Well, they have to be driven there. And they have to be centered into a place where the Bible has called, has called it the wine press. And there God is going to trample out the, the, these, these, all of this, these armies of the world to where we get that river, as Revelation describes, a river of blood that flows for 200 miles. Now, the second thing that we see here is the plan of Satan. Verse number 13, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now, this is another... Um, amazing part of prophecy because God is in such masterful control of Satan that he uses him to herd up the armies of the world into the place where God can crush them. Now, the unclean spirits that it's speaking of here come from the unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And their purpose is to entice world leaders to join in this battle to fight against God. And so they use their abilities to perform miracles to deceive leaders into thinking that they can win. There's an Old Testament story about King Ahab who was deceived by lying prophets. And the prophets told Ahab that if he went into battle against the Syrians that he would be victorious. But the prophets were lying prophets... And there was a true prophet of God that told Ahab exactly what was going to happen to him. But Ahab believed the lying prophets, and so he went into the battle anyway, and then he was killed by the Syrians. Now, I want you to listen to this true prophet, and he tells the story about the lying prophets or the lying demons that had been put into these prophets so they would tell Ahab a lie. This is 1 Kings chapter 22. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit, and stood before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, That's God. Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go forth, and do so." 
Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. So Ahab believed the lying prophets. He went into battle, and he was killed, just as the true prophet of God said. And then Ahab was returned to Samaria for burial. And when they brought Ahab back, they washed his chariot out, and the Bible says that the dogs came and licked up his blood. And if you remember, going back to a prophecy that Elijah made some years before that, uh, this was a partial fulfillment of it. He said that the dogs would lick up Ahab's blood. And we also know that Elijah made a similar prophecy about Jezebel, and uh, Ahab's wife Jezebel ended up with the same fate, only the dogs did more than lick up her blood, they ate her. Good thoughts, good thoughts. So the kings of the east then, they fall victim to the miracles of this unholy trinity, and so they begin this march to the place where God is going to destroy them all. Now I think an interesting side note to this is that In the later part of the tribulation, it appears that this coalition of governments that are headed by the Antichrist begins to break down. Now remember, the Antichrist had come into power by uh, promising them that uh, all the people of the world, that he could save them from the economic fallout of the tribulation. He was lauded as a hero, and they thought that he could make all things right. But like any politician that makes promises and he can't keep them, well, public opinion starts to go against him. So he started out with a 100% approval rating. And now, uh, at the point we're reading here, the popularity of the Antichrist is following faster than Obama. So it might be be a a period here where you see that the, the kings of the world are already at war with one another. The kingdom of the beast is crumbling from within. And so in a last-ditch effort, what he has to do is to pull together uh, all of these armies to make one last stand against God. And these miracles of demons enable him to do that. They convince these men to come together, making them think that they can defeat God. Now, if you'll glance over there into chapter 17, we have a scripture that's connected with this gathering together for the showdown. If you look at verse number 12 in chapter 17, it says, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. Now, we're going to get into all this a little bit later and explain it in more detail. But the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now you notice there it says, they receive power as kings one hour with the beast. What that means is their kingdoms are very short-lived, and so they... Uh, begin to struggle against one another for a time, but then they're going to reunite behind the Antichrist once again because their hatred for God is stronger than their hatred for each other. And it could be that the anti-Semitism at that time is so great that what these kings are trying to do is to prevent Israel from finally going into the millennial kingdom and the reestablishment of the kingdom. Now, we notice in the end of verse 14 a statement. It says, to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now, that tells us that this is God pushing Satan's trinity. God is controlling them like puppets. And so they think they're in control, but they don't know that they're falling into the trap. And like the general said, 
in order to make a weapon of mass destruction effective, you have to have the mass together, and then you have to drop the bomb on the whole kit and caboodle. So the plan of Satan works here. It's just that the outcome is far different than he supposed. So Satan is like Ahab. He thinks that he's going to prosper in the battle, but the blood will flow, the scavengers will be there, and they will eat the carnage and lick up the blood. Now, the third thing that we see here is the promise from the Savior. Verse 15, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. If you have a red-letter Bible, uh, most of them will have verse number 15 in red letters. And, of course, that indicates that these are words that are spoken by Christ. And do you remember, I've spoken on several occasions about there are places of respite, respite that, are, that are put into the text. And those are put there. There's these brief pauses that we have every now and then to sort of let us catch our breath. And here is how God lets us know that he's still in charge. This is one of those places where we're reading and all of these bad things are happening. But God wants us to be comforted that God has a purpose in, in this. And God is driving towards that purpose. We saw one of these places of rest in chapter 11 that was important. Uh, and at that time, we called it a preview of the end. God was letting people look and see what would happen in the very end. There were six trumpets that had already sounded. There were plagues that were coming upon the earth. The two witnesses that God had sent to, to uh, do miracles and turn people to Christ, those two witnesses were killed. And then we read in verse number 15 of that 11th chapter, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that was God letting the people have a look into the future, that God's taking the world someplace. And unfortunately... For the people of this world and for people that get saved during that time, this is a very bloody path. It's not going to be an easy one. Uh, Nobody on earth at that time is going to have an easy time. Many of God's people are going to be killed. But the outcome, of course, is that Christ's kingdom is coming. Then we have another respite in chapter 14, and that was one that we studied in detail. And that was the promise that those who die in the Lord are blessed. And if you remember, we call that the beatitude of death, the blessing of death. Now, interestingly, what we have here in chapter uh, 16 is another beatitude. It said, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And this is a verse that is encouragement to faithfulness, that faithfulness to God will have a reward. Now, Christ uses here the imagery of a thief. And this is often seen throughout the scriptures. And what it's trying to tell us is that no matter what time that we live in, whether and this is particularly written for the tribulation time, but no matter what time that we live in, we're always to be watchful, looking for the Lord to come. We're to guard our lives. We're to be awake. We're to be, awake, we're to be prepared for Christ's coming. We have to be vigilant. We have to be ready. Now, we don't know when the Lord is coming back. And so we certainly do not want him to come and find us mixed up in anything that would bring reproach to him. Then we have another phrase here, and and this is about keeping our garments. And there it's speaking about righteousness. Righteousness is like a garment that you wear. Soldier is identified by his uniform, and the people of God are identified by their righteousness, by their good works that they do. Our works are actually what tells the world where our allegiance belongs. 
So you think about that. How do people actually know that we're a soldier of the cross? I mean, they can't see it in the clothes that we wear. But here it says, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. When God gives righteousness, you can't see that. I mean, it's not a physical thing that you actually see. Over in chapter 19, it tells us there that the saints of God will be clothed in white linen. And that white linen stands for righteousness. But I promise you that if you go outside your house today wearing a white bathrobe, and you wear it everywhere you go, nobody's going to say, well, I see he's wearing his righteousness today. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a pretty good guy. He's got the imputed righteousness of Christ on him. They don't see it that way. But what they do see is your righteous works, the fruit of the Spirit that's in your life. That's when they see the likeness of Christ in you. Then they know that you're somebody that's different. And if you claim that and you don't live it, that's what the Bible calls nakedness. That's what it's speaking about here. Our nakedness is the hypocrisy of a person who says that he is a believer in Jesus Christ, and yet he doesn't live that claim. Now, I'm going to stop here for just a moment, and I'm going to meddle with you just a little bit. We'll stop preaching and meddle just a little bit. And I want to ask you, are you the same person at home that you profess to be at church? Are there things that you'll talk about in your home and things that you'll do that you won't do here at church? And do your conversations that you home, have at home take a little bit different tack than the way that you talk here? As most of you know, I, I'm not really a, a big fan of the social networking sites. And I really, this is, this is a puzzling thing to me. I, I really don't understand why somebody wants to hang out every little detail of their personal lives in front of thousands of people that they don't even know. That, that escapes me. I don't understand it. I believe that there's a way that those kind of sites could be useful, and uh, that would be if you had a thousand people that are connected to your face page or whatever that is you have. You got a thousand people connected there, and you got a thousand people following all of your inane little tweets that you send out. Then I suppose that if you filled all of those up with praises for the Lord and people read that, then that would be a very useful thing, and you might do some good. Unfortunately, what I hear, and I don't have one of these, but unfortunately what I hear, that's not the way it is. There are many of you that I know are showing some very glaring inconsistencies in your life by the kinds of things that you put on Facebook and the social networking places. And so you have people, you know, well, we can come in church and we can talk a good game here. But the conversations that you're carrying on in those places are saying things that you ought not to say and innuendos that ought not to be there. And folks, that's not the way a Christian ought to live. And what you look like when this happens, you look like a run-of-the-mill heathen instead of one of God's people. And you know what happens when you do that? What the Bible says right here, you're letting your nakedness appear. Now, even that can be literal with some people, as I understand, but you, you let your nakedness appear. Now, you're showing your nakedness because it appears that you're not clothed in righteousness. And you need to change that. And you have to understand that, that, that God, the God that you serve, is not confined to this room right here. God is out there. And, and, and there's more going on out there to determine whether you're a Christian than goes on in here. You're here an hour a week, two hours, three hours, some of you that come all three services. But you're out there every day living your life. You're, you're at home, you're at work. Every minute that you're outside of your building, that's where your true religion is. Your true religion's not in here. In fact, folks, your true religion could very well be your Facebook page. And all the feeds that go out there to the people that, that are following you. 
So maybe I should put it this way. Who's following your feeds? Because they probably know a whole lot more about your religion than I do. Quiet. So here is a word of respite. Christ is still in the mix here, and he's the one that's pushing all of this to a conclusion. Now we have verse number 16. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Now we're just getting a taste of this tonight. We'll talk much more about it a little bit later on. But the fourth thing that I have noted here is the place of squeezing. And uh, I was thinking about this this afternoon Do you realize how hard it is sometimes to alliterate? And sometimes it comes out like this, the place of squeezing. Now, what I'm talking about here is the wine vat. This is how the Bible describes it. This is where the blood of this army, these men that follow the Antichrist, men and women alike, is going to be squeezed out into a bloody mess, and that blood flows like a river. This is the place that's called in Hebrew Armageddon. Armageddon is somewhat a a difficult word to interpret, and people have different ideas about what it actually means. And uh, some say that it means the mountain of Megiddo. But unfortunately, there is no mountain of Megiddo. There is no such thing. There's a valley, and so we think that what this refers to, of course, is the plain near Megiddo. It's the valley that's sometimes called the valley of Esdraelion. Ezra Elon, I'm sorry, Ezra Elon, and sometimes referred to as the Valley of Jezreel. Now, I have a picture, uh, if we can get that up. I don't know if you can see this, Pharaoh. It's kind of light there. You see, maybe see it better than I do. But this is a picture that was taken from uh, Mount Carmel, which is the place where Elijah had his contest with the prophets of Baal. And this is just a huge valley, very beautiful valley, lots of fruits and vegetables that are grown there, uh, just a huge area. Uh, we took this picture from, from up on top of Mount Carmel. It kind of gives you an idea of, of the vastness of this valley, and that's just one small part of it. And this is an extremely important area of Israel historically. Uh, many great battles that you read about the Bible were fought here. This is where Barak fought with the Canaanites in Judges chapter 4. It's where Gideon had his victory over Midian. You remember that story about how Gideon pared his army down to 300 soldiers and they defeated this vastly superior Midianite army. This is also the place where Saul and Jonathan were killed. It's the place where good King Josiah was killed by the armies of Pharaoh Necho. So it's a very important part of Israel's history. On the western side of this valley is the town that's called Megiddo. Megiddo is a city that was fortified by David and Solomon because it was such a strategic place. Uh, Really, this valley that you're looking at lies on the north-south route between Egypt and Syria. So there are always people traveling up and down uh, this particular part. And so David and Solomon fortified the city of Megiddo in order to protect this particular area of Israel. Now, I have a a few shots of that I want to show you as well. This is... um, at Megiddo, where they had the excavations and so forth. I don't know if you'd see that very well, but this is kind of what the city looked like uh, back in the time of David and Solomon and, and the kings. And if we go on to the next one, this is the ruins that you see of the city now, the, the uh, entrance into it there. And I have a couple of shots here. If we get the next one, it's looking down over uh, the ruins of Megiddo. And then this, this next one is uh, particularly interesting to me uh, because this is one where you can... I don't know, you can just imagine in seeing the history of Israel. Uh, this is the, the uh, area, the stable area. And 
I've got a pointer here, but if you look at this little line that you have here, you have a kind of a step down here. This particular area on this side dates all the way back to the time of King David. And that was just fascinating to me to get out there and walk on stones where King David would have walked. And then this section up here comes from the time of Ahab. Then the next picture, uh, these are watering troughs of the horses dating back to the time of, of David and Solomon. And then this last one is looking out from Megiddo into the valley of Jezreel um, or valley of Megiddo there where this is all going to take place. Napoleon actually came through here with his armies. And Napoleon said that all of the armies of the world could be held in that valley. Now, of course, looking at what the Bible is telling us here, we we know that 200 million soldiers could not fit in this valley. And so what will happen is all the way from Galilee in the north, stretching all the way down to the Dead Sea in the south, all of the valleys are going to be filled with soldiers. But this particular place, this is the main concentration of it. And this is where God says, this is called the wine press of God. This is where Armageddon takes place. And God destroys those armies of the Antichrist. Now next week we're going to come back and we're going to look at this uh, at the seventh plague. And we'll talk a little bit more about uh, what's going to happen to the world when that seventh plague comes. But we're winding things down. The tribulation is coming to a close, and then the millennial kingdom of Christ comes on earth. I'm not sure if I mentioned this last week or not, but if you're really looking forward to getting into the millennial kingdom, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to wait, because chapter 17 is an interlude in the story. And what it does, it takes us all the way back to the beginning of the tribulation and begins to show us the rise of ecclesiastical Babylon. That's the religious side of the Antichrist empire, which actually helps him to get into the middle of the tribulation when he has his greatest power and authority. So we'll, we have to get into chapter 17 and 18, and then when we get into 19, then uh, we, we actually come back to the spot where we're finishing in 16, and we see the, the battle of Armageddon that takes place. So it's all, uh, it's a fascinating story. It is to me at least. And uh, again, I don't want you to uh, be unbalanced with what's taking place here. Because at the present time, we're serving a God of mercy, love, and grace who desires the salvation of sinners. He wants people to trust him, to come to him. And, and he is, is a loving God that sent Christ in the world to die for our sins. And that's important for us to understand today. We believe in Jesus Christ today and we escape all of this that's coming in the future. This is, as I said before, informational only for those who know the Lord. Because the only, the only part that you would have in this, if you're a child of God, is that you're going to be on the Lord's side coming back with the armies. The saints that are coming back with angels to defeat the armies of the Antichrist. I want to be on that side. I don't know about you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we're able to be here and and discuss your word tonight. Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to have a little better understanding of this. And and may it be something that we would let people know is going to happen. And and Jesus is coming back. We need to trust you. And we don't want to have a part in all these things that are going to take place, the terrible things that will happen in the world after Jesus comes again. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless, you draw hearts closer to you. We have a message to tell and help us to give that to the lost and dying in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.